Well, our normal practice, if you are a regular around here, of course, is to move through books of the Bible. We trace God's message through uh, each book of the Bible as we move through. But this summer, we have been spending time walking through our church's doctrinal statement, these ten paragraphs that summarize the truths around which we unite as a congregation. And every week when we uh, move from section to section, we read it uh, out loud. We read what our doctrinal statement says. And we're going to start off by doing that right away. So if you want to take out the uh, pink sheet that's in your bulletin, we're going to read this paragraph about the church. This is what we believe about the church. Let's read this uh, together this morning as uh, we continue, shall we? We believe the universal church launched on the day of Pentecost is the spiritual body of Christ of which he is the head. The local church is made up of all who have made a genuine confession of faith and are baptized in order to acknowledge publicly their relationship with Jesus Christ. Immersion is the mode of baptism that best reflects the teaching of the New Testament. The local church practices the Lord's Supper in order to remember his death and burial, anticipating his return. The church is built into Christ-likeness through biblical teaching, faithful prayer, passionate evangelism, and sincere worship in the context of accountable community. Well, these are difficult days for the church, especially here in our own state of Pennsylvania. It was two weeks ago that the Attorney General released a lengthy and detailed report from a grand jury that summoned, uh, the grand jury that was summoned in order to investigate clergy sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. You have perhaps heard about it. They investigated six of the eight dioceses in Pennsylvania, and it describes a 70-year history of horrific crime. 1,000 children who were victimized, 300 priests who were accused, and a cover-up, a conspiracy among the bishops, the ruling shepherds of the church, uh, to to cover this over and to ignore the problem. Uh, The report is horrific, it's grotesque, it's disgusting, and everyone ought to be horrified by it. Now, uh, I know we don't consider ourselves in partnership with the Roman Catholic Church. We have significant and essential differences. But do you really think that matters much to a skeptic or a critic of the gospel? Um, we, we're, we're, we have organized religion like they do. We use the word church. We have our own clergy. Our vocabulary overlaps too much. And even within our own camp, the last few months have not been kind. We have our own list of high-profile scandals. You've heard of the Me Too movement. There is a Church Too movement that is afoot matching the Me Too movement. And what's even more demoralizing uh, is that uh, these scandals are hardly new. I remember the day that Jimmy Swigert cried and cried on television. And I remember when Jimmy Baker was sentenced to uh, prison for his financial crimes. We're not them either. We have differences with them, but but still. Uh, This this renewed attention, this darkness, um, raises a provocative question, doesn't it? Maybe this whole idea, this whole concept called the church is broken beyond repair and we just ought to trash it and start over again. Uh, 
It's what God wanted to do with the Israelites in the Old Testament at one point in time. Remember, he was so unhappy with the Israelites and what they were doing that he said to Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out and I'll start again with you because this is such a mess. Maybe, maybe God should consider doing the same thing with the church. Start over again. Seems like Christ has lost significant control of, of his people. It's a mess. So the basic question that I want to answer this morning uh, with you, that I want to ask and answer, the title of this talk at the top of that pink sheet is called Church, Why Bother? And that's the question that I want to ask and answer. I want you, I want you to invest your time and energy in this local assembly that is called Grace Baptist Church of Millersville. I want you to sign up wholeheartedly, I want you to be excited about participating in a growth group so that you can meet with other believers to pray with them and encourage them and uh, talk about Christ and the Bible together. And, and if not that, I want you to commit to in some other way sitting around regularly with another follower of Jesus to help them, him or her, follow Jesus more faithfully. I want you to invest in this congregation. I want you to walk in the doors every Sunday morning and pray that God would help you to encourage at least one person in the congregation. I want you to come to church to find that person in the auditorium who is sitting alone. Maybe it's someone who's a lot older than you are and and they're wearing the same shirt and tie combination that they wore when Jimmy Carter was president. Or, Or they're a lot younger than you are and they have a really weird haircut. But I want you to introduce yourself to them and I want you to sit next to them and I want you to sing with them and pray, uh, um, pray next to them and open your Bible next to them. I want you to give generously to the building expansion fund. I want you to go look at the plans on the ramp and I want you to think about where in the new refreshed building you'll have an opportunity to serve. I want you to think with me about what these walls will look like with some color on them. I want you to imagine what's going to replace these valances that have served valiantly for 27 years but are ready to retire. They're begging for their social security checks in a place at Willow Valley. And I want you to give to the building expansion fund so these poor things that have served so well can retire. I want you to go to congregational meetings and be confused by financial reports. I want you to start thinking about, because it's almost time, who you could nominate to serve as an elder. I want you to forbear with people who come late every Sunday. It doesn't matter what time the service starts, it changes next week. They'll still be the same amount of time late to the new time. You could set your watch by it. I want you to love them. I want you to persevere with people who are rude and thoughtless and people who are strange and impatient and judgmental. I want you to do your best to live at peace with obnoxious people because they're members of the church of Grace, uh, Grace Baptist Church of Millers. I want you to forgive them when they offend you seven times in one day. Hardly seems possible that they could do it in the two hours that we're here, but they can. And I want you to, to forgive them. That's the, the sort of investment that I want you to make. And I don't want you to do it for my sake. I want you to do it for Jesus' sake. Church, why bother? 
It might seem odd that I'm going to try to answer that question from our doctrinal statement. This is the section of the doctrinal statement that is dedicated to the church, and it's the section that is probably the most narrow and exclusive part of the whole statement. When I, teach, uh, when I introduce people to the mem- uh, doctrinal statement in membership class, classes, um, I say that there are parts of the doctrinal statement that mark us out as Christians, that divide us from non-Christians, so we are Christians and we're not Jews, we're Christians and not Buddhists, we're Christians and not Muslims, and, and those parts of the doctrinal statement are the, the statement that, that talk about the Trinity, we talk about that, and, and um, the deity of Christ. We're Christians, not Jews, Muslims, Buddhists. We are there are some parts of the doctrinal statement that mark us out as Protestants and not Roman Catholics, uh, namely the parts that describe the authority of the Bible. We believe that the scriptures are the supreme standard in all matters to which it speaks. Then uh, the circle gets smaller. There, there are parts of the doctrinal statement that identify us as evangelical Protestants and not Roman Catholic Christians. Uh, the part that we talked about a couple weeks ago, salvation is a gift received apart from, uh, by faith, apart from any uh, human merit or ritual or work. And then there is this section here that the, the slice gets even smaller that marks us out as Baptists and not Methodists, Presbyterians, or Mennonites. So smaller and smaller and smaller. It was, it was these issues in this paragraph that is before us that kept the first reformers in the 1500s from uniting together. It's an interesting story. I'll tell it to you, part of it. Uh, so there was a man, his name was Philip of Hesse. He was a prince. He lived in Germany. And he was concerned, as the Protestant Reformation began, that some of the Roman Catholic countries would invade Switzerland or invade Germany and try to impose by force Roman Catholicism. And, and he thought that one of the ways that they, they could forestall this invasion is that they had all the branches of the Reformation unite, the Swiss uh, reformers and the German reformers. So he had a meeting. He invited uh, these uh, leading theologians to a meeting. It happened in October 1529 in Marburg, uh, where he had a castle. And it's called, it's called in history the Marburg Colloquy. Colloquy is a fancy word for a conference. Uh, Martin Luther was there. And uh, so was his uh, friend, Philip Melanchthon. And there was another Lutheran with Martin Luther. His name was Justice Jonas, not one of the original brothers. Um, John Calvin, I'm surprised some of you know that you are cooler than I thought. I didn't think anybody would get that. It's impressive. Uh, John Calvin was not yet uh, influential enough to uh, be there, but the Swiss were represented. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli was there from uh, Zurich. Ocalampadius was there from the city of Basel. And Martin Busser and others were there from Strasbourg. And uh, they met together, and the meeting did not go well. It didn't even start well. Martin Luther could sometimes be a jerk. He was stubborn sometimes and uh, irascible. So the, the big issue uh, that they were, one of the big issues, the key differences among these early reformers had to do with the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So uh, the Roman Catholic Church, of course, believed that Christ was physically present, that the body, uh, that the bread and the, the wine became the body and blood of Christ. And the reformers disagreed about the varying levels in which, they all denied that, but in what sense, in what way is Christ present, actually present? And Luther had a, high view, a a stronger view of the presence, 
of Christ. And the first thing he did on that first morning is he walked into the room where they were going to meet and he took a piece of chalk and he wrote on the table, this is my body. Except he wrote it in, in Latin probably, hoc est corpus meum. And for the rest of the time, whenever they would have any disagreements, he would point to those words like this. Uh, he refused. Zwingli was there. Zwingli emphasizes that the Lord's Supper is about remembering a memorial that, that Christ isn't physically present. And, and Luther, Luther would not even acknowledge that you could be a Christian and hold that opinion. He said that Zwingli, he called him a devil. He told, said that Zwingli was uh, more damaging to the church than the Pope and all his priests. He, it, uh, it didn't go well. And ever since then, Lutherans, there were two branches at that point in time, Lutherans and the Reformed tradition. Churches divided even more then. Well, this doctrinal statement, this section addresses the Lord's Supper. And here we sit as Baptists, right, Baptists. We announce to everyone with our name that we have a particular understanding of baptism and we're out of sync with other members of the body of Christ in this issue, so much so that we are willing to form our own church, our own local assembly over this issue. And both of those issues, the Lord's Supper and baptism, are here in this statement. So it seems odd that I want to talk about how great the church is with this section that's so divisive. Well, nevertheless, we proceed. Um, I've already given you one of the three reasons why uh, you should bother with the church. That's what we're going to do. I want to give you, in the balance of our time, three reasons why you should bother with the church And and I've hinted at one of them. I I want you to invest in the church, not for my sake, but for Christ's sake. Or to put it another way, you should bother with the church because the church is where, number one, Christ reigns. The church is where Christ reigns. Now, I know he's seated at his Father's right hand and all things have been placed under his feet. But here is the place where Christ's reign is announced, it's welcomed, it's celebrated. That's who we are, and that's why you should invest in the church. Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We're going to spend some time in Ephesians, uh, looking at a couple verses, and we'll flip over to Romans for a little bit. But Ephesians, chapter 1, is where I want to direct your attention uh, Ephesians 1 is uh, perhaps the best New Testament epistle for thinking about the church and what it is and why it matters. And Ephesians chapter 1 uh, is where I want to direct your attention. Now, our doctrinal statement makes a difference, a distinction between the universal church and the local church. Those are two important words. The universal church refers to all believers everywhere across all time since the day of Pentecost. It talks about, uh, it's across denominations, it's across nations, it's across ethnicities. There has never been a meeting of the universal church. There's no structure for the universal church in the New Testament, but, but we are all members of the universal church, those who are followers of Jesus. There will be one meeting of the universal church. The first meeting will be when the Lord Jesus calls us to himself. That'll be a good meeting. Uh, but now then our doctrinal statement in the, the New Testament also uses the word church to describe local assemblies and, and uh, local assemblies that meet together on a regular basis. Christ is the head of the universal church and his sovereignty, he's head of the universal church and his sovereignty is celebrated by us when we meet together on Sunday mornings. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is praying for the Ephesians and he wants them to know about Christ's power, God's power. In the middle of verse 19, he describes that power. 
Look what it says. It begins there in the middle of that verse. That power, God's power, that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I'm interested in verse 22, that phrase, God appointed Christ to be head over everything for the church. Christ is the head of the church. God's power is on display in raising Christ from the dead and his ascension into heaven, his sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, placing everything under his his feet, and in making him, appointing him as a head of the church. Uh, In my normal course of my Bible reading, I'm in 1 Samuel right now, and uh, we spent a time in that book, uh, finished a few months ago. Do you remember the Israelites came to God and they said, we want a king And God gave them a king and he gave them Saul. How did that work out? Not very well. So then God gave them David, which was better. Still not not great. If if God gave Israel Saul and then David as, as kings, who, think about this, who could God give to the church to be head of, over it? Um... I suppose God could have given an angel to be head of the church. We could be the church under the leadership of Gabriel. That's possible. Or some sort of exalted human being. He could have given us, um, he could have raised Moses from the dead and Moses could be head of the church or David could be, or he could have just given Paul a long life and made him head of the church under, under, under God. That, that's a possibility. But instead, God gave us Christ himself as the head of the church. We are on team Jesus. Christ is not just the head of the church, he's the husband of the church. Look, look over with me here at Ephesians chapter 5. You know this passage really well, I'm sure. But in Ephesians chapter 5, just a couple pages over, these familiar verses, how does Jesus feel about the church? Here's the question, what does Jesus think about the church? Ephesians 5 verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ, Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. Christ does that too. Just as Christ does the church, he feeds and cares for the church for we're members of his body. It is impossible to love Jesus and hate the church. It's because Jesus loves the church and he cares for the church. He nourishes the church and cherishes the church. Mark Dever wrote, The church should be regarded as important to Christians because of its importance to Christ. Christ founded the church. He purchased it with his blood and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the Spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. We are those, when we meet together, this is a distinguishing mark of us as a group of people, we are those who are committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the place where His supremacy is announced 
and celebrated. We love the fact that Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. We used to sing a song. I made a promise that we would not sing this song anymore, but we used to sing a song because it had, I promised because of all 47 verses that we would not sing this song anymore. But do you, remember, you know what I'm going to talk about, right? Everybody knows, and you're all thankful. It's uh, the, the, the hymn, I Love the Church. I memorized the chorus because we sang it 7,000 times. Remember? May Christ be praised, preeminent, adored. I love the church. Why? Because I love her Lord. Jonathan Lehman says in in some ways uh, that we uh, who are part of the church are people from the future. He says every little church is like a time machine with people in in the future. We represent a future kingdom. It's the coming kingdom in which the Lord Jesus Christ rules as king. This kingdom is coming. We are committed to it now. Here, we are future people. The whole world, everyone in the world at some point in the future is going to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. We're doing that now. History is on our side. We're on the right side of history because we acclaim the lordship and supremacy of Jesus Christ. We used to sing a song. We don't sing it very much. It was a contemporary, more contemporary song, Now is the Time to Worship. Someday every knee will confess his Lord. Someday every, uh, someday every tongue will confess his Lord. Someday every knee will bow. The greatest, still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly uh, call him that now. We are those people. We're the future people who are worshiping the Lord Jesus. Now this raises a question, doesn't it, that we have to answer. It's a good question. I have, I have a little bit of an answer for it. I'm going to suggest a couple things and somebody here is going to be smart enough and thoughtful enough to fix what I'm going to say and add to it. Here's my question. If, If this is Christ's church, if he's the head, if he's the husband, um, if he's the one who's building it, then why is the church such a mess? Right? So how do, how do we put together this great glory that Ephesians is describing and then the condition of the church right now? How do we put those things together? Anybody else see the disconnect between those things? Why is the universal church so divided? Why are local churches so full of hypocrites? Why, why is the church sometimes so shoddy, so clueless and cold and irrelevant? Why are we sometimes so behind? Does it ever seem like maybe the Lord Jesus hitched his wagon to a lame horse? So how do we put these things together? The, the wonder of the church described in the Bible and the reality of what happens in congregations. Well, I just have a couple things that I think about here in this. I think we should remember, first of all, that God has a lot of experience in dealing with messy people. Uh, in fact, that's the whole story of the Old Testament, isn't it? From the very beginning of the Old Testament, God creates communities. He made a community uh, in the Garden of Eden. But, but God, throughout the Old Testament, calls people together to follow him, to worship him together. And in the Old Testament, the community that he created was a nation. It was the nation of Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, he calls together a multi-ethnic, multinational community that is not a nation. It's, it's the church. And the Bible tells us that Israel set a consistent pattern of embarrassment and shame. 
The prophet Isaiah at one point in time described uh, uh, the, the people of Israel. They, they actually repented in, in response to his preaching. Isaiah was preaching and the people repented and they threw away all their idols. And all of Israel's enemies said, look, they stopped worshiping God. Apparently the idolatry was so bad that when they got rid of the idols, people thought that they'd stopped worshiping altogether. It's sexual perversion, injustice, idolatry. The story of the Old Testament is a mess, and these are God's people. I read, about, I, I read that and I think about our human capacity to corrupt and to defile. We're really good at it. This is one of the, one of the ways that our sin reveals itself in, in our ability to corrupt and defile almost anything all the institutions that God has made. Think about what we have done to marriage, what we have done to the family. And then I I wonder sometimes, secondly, when I think about this issue, the contrast, I wonder if sometimes our discouragement about the big stories, the terrible big stories of failure, I wonder if they, they distract us in ways that aren't very helpful. So Matthew 13, Jesus uses an analogy. He compares the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not the same as the church, but follow me here for just a minute. He compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. He says, a mustard seed is so tiny, it's just tiny, but you plant it in the ground and it will grow and grow and grow and grow. And, And Jesus is telling the disciples that Christ's work is often done in unseen, unreported, private, non scandalous non-newsmaking ways, small ways. Christ's work to nourish and feed his church happens on Friday mornings when a discouraged mom shows up to a mom's group and she's grateful for the company of those women. Great, here I am, somebody else with vomit on their sweatpants. Great, this is wonderful. Um, It it happens in, in very mundane Sunday school classes when the penny drops and suddenly... Oh, I I see how that works. CNN is never there to capture that moment, right? Uh, Or or it happens over lunch when you share the gospel with your coworker, something very mundane, very normal. Don't think that that, that the big story, the big scandal is the whole story or even the most important story. Think about this. Someday, when we're with Jesus again, God is going to tell the story of the church. And it won't be told by Fox News or MSNBC. What is he going to tell us that happened that was really important but that no one else saw? Can you imagine how that's going to work? How that's going to be? How he will tell the story and his story will be right and true and fair and balanced? (laughs) Right? Paul said Jesus cares for and feeds the church. Do you believe that that's true? Now there's one more thing I think that we should keep in mind when we think about the striking difference between Jesus and and what he said about building his church in comparison to the mess we're in. One more thing. Christ is going to return and he's going to fix what we have broken. He's going to repair his church. I don't have the wisdom, nor do I have the power to fix the global church. I I can't put the problems together. I can't hold all the details together. I I can't do that. I don't. But the good news is I don't have that responsibility. Jesus hasn't given me that much responsibility. I I have a little slice. 
a little slice of responsibility. Will you help me? Will you, will you join me in doing what we can to make this little slice a Christ-honoring community? Let Christ repair what is broken with the church at large. Someday he's going to come back. He's going to unmask the wolves in sheep's clothing. He's going to discipline the wicked, lazy shepherds. It's his church. He is more than capable of repairing the damage that we, that, that we have done. We're here for his sake. We serve at his pleasure. We celebrate his supremacy. So that's the first answer to my question Church, why bother? Because it's Christ. This is where Christ's reign is celebrated. Now, here's answer number two to this question. Church, why bother? The church is where Christ's work is celebrated. Church is where Christ's work is celebrated. Now we're going to think about what our doctrinal statement says about the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are two activities instituted by Christ himself that make spiritual realities visible. Almost all uh, Christian denominations, there are a few that don't, but almost all of them practice baptism. We believe, the statement says, immersion is the mode of baptism that best reflects New Testament teaching. Now why? Let me give you three really quick reasons. Two really quick ones and one less quick one. All right, number one, the Greek word baptize means to immerse. That's what the word baptize means. It's used in the ancient language of uh, Greek to describe the sinking of a ship. You can sprinkle a, church, a ship a lot and it won't sink. But, uh, that's, or dying fabric. Plunge the fabric into dye. That's what the word baptize means. Secondly, baptism in the New Testament and the early church was by immersion. So in John 3, John the, baptize, uh, John the Baptist is uh, baptizing. And the text says in John 3, he was near uh, Anon, or at Anon near Salim. And the text says, because there was enough water there. You can pour or sprinkle near a well, but if you're going to immerse, you need a lot of water. John is there with a lot of water. All right, now number three here, immersion matches best what baptism symbolizes. Turn me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6 is where I want to direct your attention this, uh, for a couple minutes. Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at this. Romans chapter 6. We did a, I had a baptism class to prepare some people for the baptism service that we're having this morning. Uh, we did it at 9 o'clock. We read part of Romans 6. So if you weren't there this morning, you have to pay attention. If you were, you can sleep for just a couple minutes right now. Okay, verse Romans 6, verse 1, enters into a controversy we're not going to talk about, but I'm interested in Paul's analogies here. So we'll read verse 1. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, follow here. This is where he brings in baptism. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Let's read verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Oh, let's keep going. It's good stuff. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, what's confusing about these verses, even as we come to them, is that it seems like Paul is identifying baptism as the operative force, as if baptism is the thing that identifies you with Christ, the thing that makes you a Christian. But we've read Romans already before, and we've been into Romans 3, and we've been in Romans 4, and we've been in Romans 5, and we know that Paul doesn't believe that. Paul believes that we are justified by faith. That is, that salvation is a gift from God received through faith, not by baptism. But baptism is so closely associated with the moment of faith, and it's closely associated with it because it represents what faith does. When you call on God by faith through the Lord Jesus, God identifies you with Jesus. He unites you to Jesus. Jesus' death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. Everyone you know who is a follower of Jesus is a resurrected person. They have died with Christ and they live with Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself our sin. He bore the wrath that we deserved and he died. And then God raised him from the dead. That's, that's how you become a Christian. Recognizing your sin, my sin makes me an object of God's wrath. It separates me from God. I am in, naturally in rebellion against my creator. But Jesus came and paid the penalty that I owed because of my sin when he died on the cross and he rose again. And, and God offers life and forgiveness to all who will turn and receive it. That's how you become a Christian, is by turning and trusting in what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. Now, do you see how immersion symbolizes this identification with Jesus? It's just like a burial and resurrection. You go into the water and you come back up out of the water. You die going under the water and you come back out. I say this at the service. Buried with Christ through baptism into death, risen to walk in newness of life. So it's the living picture. It's what immersion, um, that's what baptism is after in this identification with Jesus. So on September 9th at 6 o'clock, several people from our church are going to publicly testify to their faith through baptism. They're going to speak the words. They're going to tell their story about how they became a follower of Jesus. And then they're going to be immersed. If you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. I, I think, there's no specific command about this in the Bible, I think that um, you should be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper. If you're really young, I think you should wait a little bit. You should be baptized, but maybe not right away. See, you should be baptized when you know for sure that your faith is your own. And it's not just the faith of your parents, but it's your faith. Charles Spurgeon, who's the best Baptist ever, um, uh, waited until his sons were 18 before he baptized them because he wanted them to know that their faith was their own. It's a good, good measure, take, give or take a few years. Christ commands it. It's part of the disciple-making process. It is the work of Christ made visible. It's the moment in time when you publicly put on your Jesus jersey and you take the field as a member of his team. 
We talk about the Lord's Supper every month when we participate in the Lord's Supper. We take the elements. It's a sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a pointer to his return. The bread represents his broken body. The juice represents his, his uh, shed blood. We depend on bread. I say this. You hear me say this, right? Just like we pre- pre- um, depend on bread and, and uh, juice for physical life to sustain us, so we are dependent upon the Lord Jesus for our spiritual life. And we all do it together, not in our homes and not in our Bible studies, but together as one body. I suppose if we want to be closer to the mark, we'd use one loaf and one cup. But we're together anticipating his return. Remember, we're future people. Why bother with the church? Because the church is the place where Christ reigns. And the church is the place where Christ's work is celebrated when we baptize and partake of the Lord's Supper. Now here's my final answer to this question, why bother with the church? Number three, because the church is where Christ's work is accomplished. It's where Christ's work is accomplished. We've talked about what the church is and and what we do, but look at her goal. According to our doctrinal statement, the church is built into Christ-likeness. That's our goal. That's what we're after. I really like how our doctrinal statement when it talks about the church is so Christ-centered. This is Christ's body. We're growing in Christ-likeness. We celebrate what Christ has done. I, I really like that. Uh, Christ-likeness is the goal. So we go back to Ephesians 4. Shall we do that? We read from Ephesians 1. We read from Ephesians 5. Now I want to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So if you have a Bible... Don't be in Philippians like mine is, and turn to Ephesians 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Look what it says here. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So the body is growing up into the head. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but when you see a baby... Uh, most of a baby is head, right? 25% of its length, 25% of its weight is head. Babies have big heads, especially compared to their bodies, comparison to their bodies. But over time, a healthy baby, what happens? The body grows and it catches up to the size of the head. Jesus is our head and the church is growing. It's catching up so it matches the head. It's the work that he does. We're growing into Christ-likeness. We're growing to fit, to match the head, Christ. And all of us are involved in the process. We are all involved in this process of biblical teaching, faithful prayer, passion, evangelism, and sincere worship. Uh, do you remember the Babylon Bee? I, read, I mentioned it a few weeks ago. The Babylon Bee is a Christian satire newspaper. Here's a recent article. It, this, is, this is brilliant. Here, You'll like this. So here's the headline from the Babylon Bee. Man refuses to join local gym, claims he's just part of the universal gym. 
So the byline is Toronto. Here's the article. Local man Tim Rubido has refused to join a local gym, claiming instead that his membership in the visible, invisible universal gym should be enough to get him into shape. Yeah, I'm not really into the whole organized fitness thing, he told reporters, stating that he's been burned a few times by gyms that didn't cater to his every whim. I'm into fitness, but I'm not religious about it. He also launched into a long diatribe about the hypocrisy of other people he sees at the gym who are working out but aren't perfectly fit yet. That really turned me off to the whole institutional exercise thing. It's just not for me. Rubidil states that he simply exercises on his own time whenever he feels like it with no disciplined routine or partners to keep him accountable. Nature is my gym, he says. Does that sting a little bit? Here's the last line of the article. This is great. At publishing time, sources have been able to confirm that Rubido hasn't exercised in 14 years. <laughs> hmm. Could it possibly be, could it possibly be that the church is Christ's plan A to reach lost people, to train them, to disciple them, to encourage them, to comfort them is it possible that you could spend your whole life that your parents could bring you when you're a baby and you could grow up in the church all the way until they carry your casket out of the church and that within that local assembly you could find sufficient help to follow jesus is that even possible i don't see how you can read the new testament and reach any other conclusion which is why i want you to invest here in this local church. And if you can't do it here for some reason, then another local church. Not for my sake. For Christ's sake. That's what we believe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for the church Lord, we confess we do struggle at times because we read, uh, we read the book of Ephesians and we read what Jesus said in Matthew, I'll build my church, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it and, and, and it gets us excited and happy and we're, we're, we're enthusiastic about the church and then we go to boring meetings sometimes and we sit next to odd people and, and we nitpick and... and hurt one another and and then we read about terrible scandals so sometimes we're confused and discouraged we confess that to you and we ask that you would remind us this morning of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Father we'll invest here because the Lord Jesus said that he would build his church and we want, want to, to make that investment here for his sake, entrusting what he said, that he cares and nourishes his church. Help us to remember that when the way seems hard and long and dry and difficult. Lord, I'm thankful to you for these many men and women. They come and they listen as, as we open the, your scriptures and think about these things and and I'm grateful to you for the grace of God that has been evident in their lives and how they, I have seen them comfort crying children 
and, and adults and make phone calls and write cards and teach classes and bake pies and set up tables and vacuum carpets and lead games, and all, so, so many things, pray and meet. Your grace is, is evident and I'm thankful to you for it. Keep us persevering for your sake, we pray, Lord Jesus. And we do ask, as we finish, we're the people of the future. We pray with the Apostle John, oh, please, please, Lord Jesus, come soon. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Please stand as we sing once more this morning. Put your armor on, hear the call of Christ our